Well, it would be hard for me to overstate the significance of what we're going to experience and witness this morning, because we are going to hear Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life. And Jesus is going to raise someone from the dead. And that someone is named Lazarus. And we're going to learn about this in the 11th chapter of the gospel according to John. Please turn there and join me as we can be overwhelmed and impressed with this amazing historical drama. I think lesser congregations wouldn't be able to handle it, but I'm pretty confident you guys are going to be able to handle it. Uh, Just an amazing, amazing historical event with all kinds of theological significance that's relative to every single person in here because gravity is against you. Everyone in this room needs a resurrection. It's just a matter of time. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and he proves it by way of, if you will, preview. He raises Lazarus from the dead, and it is, it is quite remarkable. I'll do my best to try to stay out of the way. We have a lot of text to cover, and I'll try to be a helper along the way, but the power I know doesn't come in my words. It actually comes from the words of Scripture, but I do want to be a good explainer, um, and along the way, encourager. So let's go ahead and jump right in, uh, beginning in verse 1 in John 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with anointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, He whom you love is ill, verse 4 says. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So we'll pause there just for a moment, just to kind of get our bearings maybe. Um, Bethany is where they are. There are a couple of places referenced as Bethany in the New Testament, and this is the one that would be close to Jerusalem, uh, Bethany where Jesus ascends in Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1. So in Bethany, our text is even going to tell us you're about two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. So Jesus has been traveling all around. He's nowhere near there right now, uh, but they live right by Jerusalem. If, if you can imagine that picture that most everyone in the room has seen at some time in your life of the temple, and you can see the gold dome, typically that picture is taken, I think most, most often, uh, from the Mount of Olives. So you're up on the Mount of Olives, you're looking at the temple, down below would be the valley where the Garden of Gethsemane is. So as you're looking at the temple, you're on the Mount of Olives. If you did a 180 and looked behind you, you could see Bethany. Okay, so it's all close. We're also going to see this is around the time of Passover. So there's all kinds of action. There's all kinds of people uh, in and around Jerusalem. Uh, some historians estimate there could have been up to a million people uh, flooding in and on and around the city. So there's a lot happening. So that's the Bethany we're talking about. Uh, Mary uh, is the Mary who anoints Jesus' head with oil. We're going to learn about that in chapter 12. So it's that Mary. I can't help myself, but say something about that, that gives us some clue because in our text it said it's the one who's going to anoint his head, but that hasn't happened yet. That tells us that John, the writer of this gospel account, assumes we're familiar with the whole story. 
Okay, he's writing to a familiar audience. And generally speaking, we're a familiar audience. We, we know how this ends. Okay, we know how the narrative ends. It's not a surprise ending. Oh, Jesus is crucified. Oh, Jesus is raised from the dead. Not a surprise ending. And John's even writing his account knowing he's writing to people like us who are at least familiar with the accounts. I think that's important because that even helps us to sometimes interpret what's happening. Oh, this resurrection is going to be in light of a greater resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. I couldn't resist. The Bible teacher in me had to say, that, that, that's, that's worth noting. Uh, we're gonna, we've already seen he's uh, someone Jesus, Jesus loves these three. There's a special relationship. He's going to be called his friend. Close relationship that Jesus has with these. Uh, and we're going to see there's a unique purpose involved. This, this, this sickness, this illness is not unto death. It's for the glory of God. It's for the glory of the Son. The reason I wanted to just pause for a moment about that is because there's two important things happening. Emphasis that Jesus loves these people in a special way. There's a close relationship. He's going to be called their friend, okay? And yet we've got this, what could be perceived as cold theology. This is for the glory of God. This is for the glory of Christ, this death. That seems rather cold. And we're going to read something in just a minute that seems kind of cold. Jesus doesn't go to him right away. That seems kind of indifferent and cold. And it's helpful, I think, John is writing as a historian who's paying attention to these things. Hey, no, Jesus cares for these people in an extraordinary way. We're not always good at balancing those, you know, theological realities and emotion and personal care. Jesus is perfect at it, Okay. He cares for these people uniquely so, but he cares so much, he's not just concerned with one purpose, he's concerned with a greater purpose, and that's something we're not great at. So I'll stop talking, um, but just keep those things in mind, okay? Verse 6 says, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Again, that, that, that's unexpected. That, that maybe seems wrong. And I think John has prepared us, if we were noticing, it's not wrong. It's not that Jesus doesn't care. He really cares. And we're going to see that he really cares to the point of great grief and sorrow. He so cares. But there's something bigger going on, and he's going to show his care in a way that is better than the way you might have shown your care if you were him. And we can all be thankful that I'm not Jesus and you're not Jesus and he knows what's best. It's not that he cares less, he cares more. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Then after this, his disciples, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. That's the region. He means Bethany. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. We learned about that in chapter 10. And are you going there again? Do you have a death wish or something? This is a bad idea. This is a terrible idea. And no doubt they're thinking, this is a terrible idea for Jesus. And it's a terrible idea for them because they're disciples. And they'll go with him, right? To the naked eye, this is bad. Then we come to verses 9 and 10. They seem kind of bizarre at first. Let's, let's read them. Jesus answered, 
Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What do you think? First blush, I go, what? It's kind of a bizarre thing to say. And if we haven't been paying attention to the way Jesus speaks, like in John's account, we're going to be wooden literalists. And we're going to go, hmm. Oh, so he's saying they should travel to Jerusalem in the daytime and everything will be safe. That actually is counterintuitive, isn't it? It seems like it would be safer to travel at night because then they wouldn't get caught. They wouldn't be seen. But that, he's not talking about that. And we have some hints even in the text that he's not talking about that. You probably caught on to it. I'm kind of slow learner. So I at first took it as what? He does say, because he sees the light of this world. Oh, we've already heard in John, John 8, John 9, Jesus is the light of the world. He's talking about himself. He's speaking figuratively. His point is this. If you are with me, you're safe. I am the light. You're fully protected. Nothing can harm you. As long as I'm doing this mission, you're fine. You're with me. That's what he's getting at. He may also be getting at the fact that it's daytime, so it's time to to still be working. He's still doing these works before he goes to the cross. And so it's it's not time to go hide and do nothing. It's time to still be engaged in his father's business. So let's move on now. Verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples, right, they're, they're scared. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. We don't need to go there, right? Verse 13 says, Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Verse 15, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Again, you take that out of a context and you think, Jesus sure is cold. But you keep it in context and you say, this is awesome the way the Bible's written. Friend, our friend, he loved them. There's something special about their relationship. It's on purpose that I didn't spare his life. It's on purpose. And I did it to serve the greater purpose that you would believe, that you would come to trust in me for eternal life. So it's not that he doesn't care. He actually cares more than we probably would because he cares on a greater scope, on a greater level. It's a a masterful, beautiful, amazing Savior that we know. One that knows best. 
I, I love it that we get to see, you know, so many times even a, a false teaching or a false cult or just our bad thinking sometimes individually, it just comes from not seeing Jesus as he is, all, all the, as a person, you know, he's not a flat piece of paper. I mean, there's contours and he's, he's amazing. He's not imbalanced. Love is driving this. Let's go to him. That you may believe in me. Remember, last time we talked about faith, and faith is not jumping into the dark with your eyes closed. Faith in the Christian, it could be, if you're, if you're, if you're faithing in something that is not faith-worthy, trusting in something, but Jesus, who's going to be proving that he has power over death, is faith-worthy. He's trustworthy. I, I let him die so that you would believe See, a legitimate object of faith is who Jesus is. He's trustworthy. He has the power over death and therefore sin. Okay, verse 16. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now you have to decide. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out if you're a pessimist or an optimist right here. Is this, by Thomas, an act of bravery? Some say so. It doesn't, our text doesn't actually say so. We, we don't know. It's not worth the church split. Okay? Let's go. We'll go with him. So we can die. We are faithful. Could be. No matter what, he still does. I mean, that would be like Peter. Doesn't mean he's fully knowing the implications of it. Or it could be doubting Thomas. I'm showing my hand. I'm a pessimist. Chapter 20. This is the same Thomas. Yeah, let's go so we can die too. <laughs> right? I don't know which one it is. I just know that he said that. And it wouldn't be good if they go. But it would be good. Okay, let's move on. 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. No surprise to him, but verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Even the relatives that normally wouldn't have come perhaps are in town because it's Passover time as we're going to see and the city is filled with people and so they're coming and joining her in the morning. The morning could be 30 days. Typically you'd bury the body right away but there would be prolonged mourning going on. Perhaps we can have time to say more about that later. Perhaps not. Friends, relatives, 20 says, so then Martha, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him but Mary remained seated in the house still greeting the friends, neighbors, people coming there, still displaying their grief. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
22. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's right. She She has good theology to know that God will raise the dead. The Pharisees believe that. The Sadducees didn't. Samaritans didn't, but, but this is conservative, biblical kind of theology. I, I know that that's going to happen, Lord. I believe that, but there's more to it, more to it than what Jesus is saying. Here we go, 25. This is the great part. This is worth underlining and highlighting. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. Connecting dots, huh? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, whoever trusts in me, the right object of faith, because I'm the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 26 says, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Second death kind of view in the ultimate sense. It's an amazing claim. It's a claim we already know he backs up by his own resurrection, but he's going to give a historical preview by showing he has the power, raising Lazarus from the dead. So not only is there resurrection, there is resurrection, there is also life. Not only is there life, there's also life eternal, based upon what Jesus is saying here. And it comes from the one who is the resurrection. And it comes to whoever believes in him. Let's keep going. 26. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is exactly the right answer. Okay, you connected the dots for me. I I believe that you really are the one. You are the, by saying the Christ, you are the long-awaited king. Okay, there have been many messiahs. There have been many legitimate messiahs in the Old Testament because they're anointed ones. They're the anointed designated kings. But here she's saying, you are the Christ. You're the one we're waiting for. You're, you're better than David. David was a Christ. David was a messiah because he was an anointed king. You're, you're, you're the one. And a king, a Christ, a deliverer brings freedom. Okay? Think about in the, in the non-spiritual realm, the lesser realm, what would a good king do? A, 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 a kind king, a generous king, a righteous king, he would protect, he would deliver, he would take care of, meet the needs of the people he represents. And so here, if Jesus is the ultimate king, the ultimate Christ, he's the ultimate deliverer. And she's seeing this, the Son of God. And we've learned there are lesser sons, lowercase s. You're the long-awaited Son of God. This is pretty awesome what's happening here. Now, he just made it clear that if you believe in him, you have eternal life, resurrection life. 
So I would conclude that she has eternal life. I have a question for you, though. What if she sins? First of all, what if? Right? There are no qualifiers here. If you believe in me, Jesus says, because he's the perfect deliverer, you will have eternal life. So we need to remember that and know that. Yes, it leads to life transformation. Yes, she'll have a new desire to honor the Lord. But her eternal life is based upon another, right? We, we so quickly forget this. You may want to make a note, you may not, but what she says there sounds virtually identical to chapter 20 verses to verse 31. The purpose John writes the account. So the people would believe that he's the Christ. And she does it. She's, the, she, she's a great example. This is the very thing that's meant to happen. Okay, let's move on to verse 28. You guys doing okay? Okay, verse 28 says, When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, remember there's lots of people around, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I didn't say it earlier, but we're told extra biblical history, even poor families had a minimum, they hired two people to play the flute. Is that flautis? I don't know. Two flute players. And that's even if they were poor, and there's no reason to conclude that this family is poor. They also hired at least a wailing woman. And again, there's no indication that these people are poor. So how many of these are friends? How many of them are relatives? How many of them are professional mourners? Either way, you get the idea. It's a big deal to mourn and to grieve because, and it's pretty good because death is bad. But there's all this action and they're going and they're going and they're going to go see Jesus and they're going to go be a part of this. But I want you to see something way more important than that, and that's in verse 33. We read it, but to underscore, Jesus deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. This goes back to, it's a false choice to say, Jesus has good theology, but he doesn't really show kindness, care, and compassion. No. He knows where this is going. 
He knows where all of it's going. And that doesn't take away in the least bit his recognition that death is bad, and death is terrible, and suffering is bad. And this is his special friend who has died, and he is with his sister, and he's been with his sisters, and all of these people, and he is not cold and indifferent because he knows how the story ends. He's there, and he is deeply grieved. He is troubled. This is, this is bad what has happened to my friend, and it is bad what the effects are on his family. Let's learn from that. Period. I was at a funeral yesterday. Some of you were there, not too many of you, but in Lincoln, an old friend who's not old, a young dad, husband. And I was glad that there was at least discussion. It was a very well done funeral and the gospel was proclaimed. He was a believer. But I was glad that there was talk of grief. I was glad that when I spoke to his father afterward, he said, you know, it's true, we, we grieve. But not like those who don't have any hope, as Thessalonians says. And I thought it resonated. Of course, I'm thinking about John chapter 10, but I'm thinking to myself, that's right. And if Jesus would have been here, he would not have been happy clappy. Death is bad. It's awful what it does but there's something greater that's going to happen. Oh, and by the way, that may also give us insight as to why Jesus is so troubled and so moved deeply because he, I don't know for sure, but he may also be thinking about what he is now going to face. To bring about eternal life, he is going to experience something like no one has ever experienced, nor will they ever experience, and it is not going to be a walk in the park. It's going to be cataclysmically awful, unrivaled in its terribleness. So to show love for his friend in ultimate resurrection power, he is going to have to go through a terrible, terrible, terrible death. I like it that the Bible says Jesus is sympathetic. So amidst our griefs and amidst our challenges and all of our difficulties, he's sympathetic. You know, I, I just can't encourage you enough to, to turn to Christ in difficult difficulty, suffering, turmoil, obviously death, the worst of all. He's sympathetic. Not to mention the fact that we read on in Scripture, cast all of your cares upon me. Psalm 55 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. It's not just theoretical either. He understands. Okay, we should move on to verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. We know something about that weeping based upon the verses before. It sounds short and clean, but we know a bit more about what that was like. 36 says, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. 
But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They're asking the right sorts of questions. 38 says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. All this is on purpose because there can't be any kind of oil. It's just a resuscitation. Well, you know, he wasn't really dead. You know, he just was in some kind of comatose thing. And it's a, No, no, no. It's all on purpose. Jesus is waiting. There can't be any of that. This is my second favorite verse in all of the King James Bible. Because by this time, he what? He stinketh. I have a more favorite one, but I'm not going to tell you what it is right now. This is, this is terrible, but it's terribly good because of the setup. He's good and dead, as terrible as that sounds. 40 says, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? Oh, now we know what he was talking about, the specific glory of God, the, the revelation of the greatness of God like you've never seen before. How about this? He, you're going to see the glory of God in a preview of glorification. And by the way, God is glorified when he glorifies saints. This isn't the ultimate glory because this guy is going to die again, but Ultimate glorification, God does this, we learn about it in Romans chapter 8, glorifies God because it shows His power, it shows forgiveness, it shows how great Christ is. 41 says, So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up His eyes and said, Father, I thank You that You have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. There's our purpose again. 43 says, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. How about that? He's tied up. You know, I, I'm not going to try to imitate how he came out. If he's laying down, did he have to scooch himself? Hands and feet are bound and his mouth is gagged. But he managed. Jesus said to them, in 44, toward the end, unbind him and let him go. Verse 45 says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And we're meant to go, wow. This didn't happen in a dream. This didn't happen in hiding. On purpose, John, many of the Jews who were with him, not just the friends who had a special kind of relationship, no, broad for people to see in public, not in Middle Earth, not in fantasy land, not in some weird vision or place. 
eyewitnesses watching historic events so that they can see and believe. It's amazing. In Bethany, a place you can see with your own eyes. The believable one is believed in. Because I am such a pessimist, I did make a note in my notes here regarding Lazarus. No multi-million dollar book tours either, by the way. It's about the believable one. It's about Christ, no doubt, even in our text, for the glory of God, for the glory of the Son. He's the resurrector. He's the resurrection. He's the life. It's all about His fame and majestic glory. For our benefit, 46 says, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One translation even translates our place as temple because that's probably what's in view shouldn't be translated that way because it's not the word for temple. It's the word for place, but it's the right idea. If they do, this is not going to be good for us. We're under Roman oppression, but it's going to get really bad if somehow now there's a, a king that has this kind of power. He's a threat. We've got to do something about this. This is super ironic, right? On different levels, why would I say that? Well, it's ironic, especially in light of 70 A.D., destruction of the temple. Okay, 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. How about that? Josephus, the Jewish historian who doesn't like Sadducees, like Caiaphas, but he referred to him as characteristically rude. And that Sadducees um, are boorish and rude to their peers and aliens. We all know people like that. You don't know anything! Yeah. You know nothing at all. Well, in a sense, he's right, though, even if he's boorish and rude. How about verse 50? Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He might be characteristically rude, and he might be stupid. But even a stop clock is right twice a day. And we're going to see this is actually prophetic. He doesn't know how, just how right he is. 51 says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that, how about this, Jesus would die for the nation. And 52 says, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. I mean, that, that is an amazing thing. You know, God spoke through Balaam's donkey. And he speaks through Caiaphas, the high priest. He might be a corrupt individual, but he is saying the right things. Jesus isn't only the savior of these Jews. As a matter of fact, he's speaking such profound truths. He, he, he's the savior of the world. He's the savior of the Jews and the Gentiles. This fits chapter 10. Sheep from another fold. 
It's amazing how true he is in his speech. Then 53 says, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Just please see the striking sickness of it. The one who raises the dead and who is the life, they're going to kill. That's why the Apostle Paul talks about they crucified the Lord of glory. This is, this is crazy. This is so perverse. This is so twisted. But it shows our human hearts when left alone. Mark this in your mind. It wasn't that they needed historical evidences and then they would believe. It wasn't that they needed eyewitnesses and then they would believe. It wasn't true then and it's not true now. There's enough evidence. Evidences aren't the problem. Our thirst and desire for power and control and fear and all of these things say, let, let, let's kill him. Let's wrap up now. 54 says, perhaps the most verses we've ever done in the history of Omaha Bible Church. I don't, I'm not sure. 54 says, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples, or the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. I had to make a note about irony there, going to purify themselves. Um, in light of all that's happening here in the opposition to the Lord of glory who raises the dead. 56 says, They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Pretty interesting stuff. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You need to believe in Jesus, as they did. It's, it's the provision of God. The way to not face ultimate second death is to believe in Jesus. You say, yeah, prove it to me. It's been proven. The problem isn't with the proof. He's your only hope. May God grant saving faith is my prayer because God has to do it for hard hearts like mine and like yours apart from grace. Let's end by a little trivia. We'll wrap everything up by, by posing this question. Others have posed it, but I thought it might be kind of interesting for us and encouraging. Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come forth, if you prefer. Hypothetical question. What if Jesus would have said, 
without the name, come forth. Everybody would have came. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Isn't that interesting? It's speculation. But the call of God in Christ with Lazarus was effective. The fancier word is effectual. It is effective. It does what he desires it to do. It's personal. Okay? It comes out of care for Lazarus that he does this. And this very thing, though this is a preview, though this is a physical event, and there's going to be a future resurrection that is also physical, by the way. But it's more than that. It's permanent. The same reality would apply. It's personal. And the call of God in Christ is effectual. And we can be grateful for this. We can be thankful for this. It reminds me of chapter 10 when Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. Okay? They respond. They respond. So we can be thankful today that it's not because of what we do. We're like dead, dead Lazarus spiritually. And the effectual call of God comes and life happens. It's a miracle. It is a miracle to go from dead to alive. We're spiritually dead, Ephesians 2 says, but God made us alive together with Christ. It's amazing. It's amazing. Okay, gravity's against us. You need resurrection, okay? You're going to have ups and downs in this life, but in the end, apart from the Lord's return sooner than later, it's going to be a down. And it's going to be a downer. Because death is bad. But we can know that there is not hope in hope. There is hope. There is confidence in the one who actually, in real time and real space, was raised from the dead on behalf of everyone who would ever believe. And so it won't be bad for you when it happens, if you're trusting in Christ. How can I be sure? You can be as sure as there's an empty tomb. Is how sure you can be. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for Lazarus. Thank you for his sisters. Thank you for all of those who are eyewitnesses. Thank you that our faith is not based upon, as Peter said in Second Peter, cleverly devised tales or myths that our faith is based upon reality. Thank you for eyewitnesses. Thank you for what you've done in Christ. Thank you for what you will do in Christ. Thank you that while we have hardship and difficulty in this life, we have a confidence of a new life in Christ, the resurrected one. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.